What will the world look like 10 or 20 years from now? The Wall Street Journal's Future of Everything podcast is here to give you a peek, and we can't wait to show you what's coming. Subscribe now. What's good, everybody? I'm Dion Rabowin for The Wall Street Journal, and this is a special episode of WSJ's Take on the Week, the show where we break down the most important things to watch in business and financial news. We cut through the noise to get you ready for what matters. Last week's Federal Reserve meeting made markets more certain than ever that U.S. interest rates are poised to fall in a major way next year. Immediately after the meeting, the Fed Fund's futures market showed that investors were betting the Fed would deliver at least six rate cuts next year, dropping rates from around 5.5% to under 4%. That's expected to drive stock prices to new highs in 2024, according to firms like Bank of America and RBC Capital Markets. But what does the Fed think about all this? We heard from Fed Chair Jerome Powell last week, and he did not rebuke market expectations that cuts were coming. But then New York Fed President John Williams spoke the following day and said the central bank was not thinking about cutting rates and may even need to raise them. It seems like there's a good bit of uncertainty for investors. So we've got Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby, who is part of the central bank's new vanguard for a special episode of WSJ's Take on the Week. We talked about monetary policy and financial markets, but we also talked about what he's been seeing in the economy as the head of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago and how the Fed might need to update its current game plan, shifting its focus from inflation to unemployment. You're in a restrictive environment. And in that restrictive environment, you want to also be aware that historically, when the unemployment rate starts going up, it doesn't just gradually drift up. It tends to go up rapidly. So we must be mindful. Goolsby has been leading the Chicago Fed since January 2023 and previously served in the White House as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. He was also once voted the funniest celebrity in Washington. So we had a few laughs during our conversation. Goolsby talked us through what he's watching and what he sees coming next for the U.S. economy. You all at the Fed have been remarkably unified so far. But I know some of you, and I know you all have very different thoughts and opinions about economics, economic policy, the role of monetary policy. So when are we going to see the first descent, and who's it going to be? <laughs> uh, look, I both don't like predicting the future, and I don't speak for anybody else on the FOMC, so I basically don't have an answer to that one. I've now finished my first year on the FOMC, and I've loved the discussion and the dialogue with the other presidents and the governors and the chair, and uh, my, my experience is exactly what you said. We have very different backgrounds. We have very different views of the economy. But I think at each juncture, the FOMC meets basically every six weeks, thinks about the data, thinks about what's happening. And for my part, I felt pretty good about us following the dual mandate for, for 2023. And I don't know what other people are going to do going forward. That was a very, very political answer, President Crosby. <laughs> with, a, with a small <laughs> P, I guess. 
All right, well, let me ask you about this, though, because we we got the latest summary of economic projections at your last meeting. Shows one person on the Fed thinks there will be no rate cuts next year, and another person thinks that you all will cut rates by 150 basis points from where they are now. Those two sides are very far apart. But let me ask you first, is one of those dots you? (laughs) No, I'm not one of the extremes on that. I'm closer to the median. People get mixed up about the SEP. That's a that's not a statement of policy. That's not. It, it's just asking each bank and each governor uh, for their estimate of what do they feel under current conditions and forecast. Do they think it's going to be the appropriate policy? I often feel that too much can be made in the public about well, if we take the collection of dots. What does that imply that, the, that they're saying they want to do for monetary policy? It isn't a statement about what people want to do for monetary policy. It's just a statement of economic projections. Well, speaking of publicly talking about this, your colleague, uh, New York Fed President John Williams, said that he thinks March is premature to be thinking about a rate cut and that the Fed actually needs to be ready to tighten policy further. That really contradicts what the market is predicting. I'm looking at the Fed Funds futures market, and investors are predicting a rate cut as soon as March and pricing that in pretty heavily. Would you agree with uh, President Williams? Of course, I don't speak for anybody else or for the committee. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just and asking I'm not about you. a big fan of— You're a voter, I, President Williams, so I'm we want to know what voter, you think. My voting ended w- with December, so next year I'm not a voter, um, and— I'm not a big fan of identifying ahead of even the next meeting this far in advance before we got the data saying, ah, it seems like we're going to raise, cut, keep the same uh, what the rate is. So I certainly don't want to speculate about two, four, ten meetings from now. What do we think the rate is going to be? We're going to get a load of data before the next meeting and another load of data before the meeting after that. I've been saying for some time that we got a dual mandate, maximize employment, stabilize prices. We were doing well on the employment side. We have done less well on the inflation side. And so the primary determinant of what's going to happen to rates in 2023 and then in 2024 is can we get inflation clearly back on a path to target. Um, We've had excellent news on that front through 2023. We got the inflation rate down a whole lot and there has not been, there isn't really a historical precedent for getting the inflation down as much as it's come down so far without a recession. I, I don't disagree personally with either characterization that we should be prepared to raise rates if we stop getting good news and it looks like we're not on path to get down to target. But also, if we see inflation going down more than we expected, we should be prepared to recognize whether that level of restrictiveness that we're at now, which is clearly restrictive, whether that's appropriate and and whether we should loosen. So any and all things are on the table and what determines it is the data and specifically whether we're getting inflation back to target. Mm. Okay, and that's fair. But the market has really gotten out ahead, right? As I said, Fed funds futures showing that the market's predicting 
and pretty sizably predicting rate cuts starting as soon as March. And then I've seen up to six rate cuts priced in for next year. So are you concerned about the way the market and investors have taken on what you all said at your last meeting and the commentary from Fed officials so far that, you know, really have had a significant impact on financial conditions? I guess the way I put it is I, I kind of came from the old school. It, it, as you know, Paul Volcker was my old uh, friend and mentor, and he was the Fed chair. He was a giant of a person, both physically and spiritually. Um, and his thing was, our job is to act, and their job is to react, and let's keep it straight. And that is, that is a bit how I feel about this. We should monitor financial conditions. I think some significant measure of the movement in financial conditions is not just speculation about who thinks what the Fed is going to do when. It is rooted in the actual data. If you back up and look at what financial conditions were in March and April, we had a big dark cloud floating over us that we thought the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the banking tensions might lead to financial crisis, might lead to a substantial credit crunch. And estimates for GDP growth seriously deteriorated. And the main thing that's happened from April to now is GDP performance was well higher than what we expected then. And inflation's been well better than what we predicted then. And those things you would think would lead to market movements like the ones we've seen. If you just kind of take a step back from what happened in the last two weeks or what happened at the last one meeting, fundamentally, inflation numbers have been coming in better than expected on a pretty steady basis. And people are getting convinced that we're getting back to target as we promised and said we would. And we're fulfilling the expectations. The inflation expectations never got unanchored. And, and we're fulfilling that promise. So I think too much can be made of the, well, the, the, the market reacted. And then do you have to react to what the market's reaction was? And how will the market react to your reaction to what the market reacted? Let's just remember the order. And again, I would just caution anybody in the market. You don't want to be fighting the Fed. I mean, if you go back to Silicon Valley Bank, it was a perfect example where they should have been hedging the interest rate. And if you go back and read the postmortem report, they were hedging and then they took the hedges off because they saw that the market did not believe that the Fed was going to raise the rates as it was saying it was going to raise them. Um, and taking off those hedges led materially to the problems that they had. And it just reinvented the fighting the Fed is not a good idea. Uh, so I, I think the thing to do is to monitor financial conditions for sure. But basically, we gotta, we're just going to do what we think is appropriate to, to satisfy the dual mandate. That's my view. We'll be right back with more from our one-on-one -on -one with Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby.
Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. Thanks for sticking with us. Let's get back to our interview with Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby. So let's get into the data a little bit, because I know you, like me, love to look at the data and see the story that's being told there. When you look at everything from disposable income to the labor market to inflation, what are the biggest questions that you're looking to answer right now? Okay, my biggest question, the backdrop is we've been doing well on the employment side of the mandate and the last couple of years where we failed was on the inflation side of the mandate. So my read based on some of the research out of the Chicago Fed and an older economic literature is that prices, they are a leading indicator for wages. Wages are not a leading indicator for prices. And so when shocks happen, prices move first and then wages. So I've been highlighting Watch the price inflation data. The fact that wage growth was higher than trend does not have to be an indicator that that it implies inflation can't come down. That what we would expect to see is price inflation start coming down first, and then you would see that reflected in, in the wage growth data. That is largely what characterizes 2023. We started to see the prices come down and now the wage growth has been moderating. I still think if you break out core inflation into these three components of housing, services, and goods, we had 2% or even less inflation before COVID. And that wasn't coming from 2% inflation in all three of those categories. It was coming from goods being minus 1% inflation, housing being about 35 or 4% inflation, and services being 25 to 3% inflation. Goods have returned every bit to the deflation that they were before COVID. Services are probably going to take a longer time because they tend to be sticky. So in my view, the critical thing to be watching now in this intermediate term is what's happening to housing inflation. And we think it's going to come down. It has started coming down and we think it's gonna continue coming down at a pretty steady clip. And if that stopped happening, then everybody should see that and say, "Uh uh-oh, the Fed is gonna need to take potential action if we don't think they're gonna get to target. But if the price inflation side continues to improve like that, that's a heavy indicator of what, in my view, would be appropriate policy. And then the second is that pretty soon here, we're going to get back to the employment side of the mandate being just as relevant. In in normal times, the Fed is trying to balance these employment and, and inflation goals. 
And what's happened over the in the recent past is one side of the mandate got way out of balance. As that one comes closer to balance, we're also going to want to make sure that the employment side stays in balance. And I think much of the data has shown an economy getting closer to a balanced path. Uh, And then the wild card in that is what's going to happen to productivity. And at the end of the day, we're pretty close to where the trend would have been if you just continued the line and COVID had never happened. The, the productivity is pretty close to, to right where you would have expected. So maybe what's going to happen now is we just go back to trend. But if productivity kept booming the way it has the last two or three quarters, I kind of think that would reshuffle the deck pretty significantly in how we think about the reaction. Can I go back to something you said about jobs there? When you say that'll come back into focus, is the idea that the Fed is worried that job growth is still too strong or growing too fast? Or is it now that it's on the other side, that as we're seeing job growth concentrated in certain sectors, that we're seeing some of that wage growth really come down, that you all are worried that maybe jobs are moving too far in the other direction? I don't know what anybody else uh, thinks. My view was more the latter that we, we are in a restrictive posture. We, if you've got the Fed funds rate at five and a half, you know, five, five and a quarter to five and a half percent, while inflation is coming down into the twos, you're in a restrictive environment. And in that restrictive environment, you want to also be aware that historically, when the unemployment rate starts going up, it doesn't just gradually drift up. It tends to go up rapidly. So we must be mindful. In, in our terminology, it's more symmetric risk or, bal- you know, the risks are balanced on the two sides of the mandate that uh, it feels like the period where the labor market was out of balance in a heavily tight way, where it it's clear we're moving more toward a balanced environment. And as we do that, and as inflation comes down, we've got to think about how restrictive do we want to be? And are there dangers on the employment side of the mandate, just like we've, we've had these dangers on the inflation side of the mandate? We'll be right back with more from this interview with Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsbee. What then will the future reveal? There's one thing we know about the future. It's being built now. We all have a stake in the future. The future. The future. The future. And the Wall Street Journal's Future of Everything podcast is here to give you a glimpse of what's on the way. I'm Danny Lewis. Join us as we dig into how science and technology are shaping the future. For that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I also want to talk to you a little bit about what you were talking about with income, with wages, with income inequality, um, because one of the things that I've been looking at in data is when you look at working class, middle class families, those families in the lower three uh, income uh, quintiles, folks making somewhere between you know twenty thousand and seventy one thousand dollars, they're seeing a decline in disposable income. They're seeing their savings rate turn negative. 
I'm looking at five straight quarters of declining personal savings rate or a negative personal savings rate for those groups of people and five straight quarters of negative real income. What are you all thinking about things like that? I think a couple of things about that. And and this bleeds into this whole discussion about the vibes and why we've never seen a bigger discrepancy between the macro data and Mm. the how people feel about the economy and this there's an argument, well, is it about real income? And then the, the other side is saying, no, it can't be about real income because actually real incomes are growing now. I think we had a bizarre moment during COVID, which involved a lot of fiscal stimulus as well as monetary stimulus. That's the, the evidence on bank accounts. You can, you definitely cannot take one year or one quarter's numbers on savings rates as an indicator without also taking into account the fact that they got those savings accounts well higher than than what they were before. While our job as central bankers is to be paranoid and worry about everything, this risk that the savings rate would stay negative for a long time going forward, and in a sense that incomes would be going down. I think the nature of that risk is just a different way of describing, is there a risk that there would be a recession? Because in a way, recession is negative income um, on, on some extended basis. So for sure, there is risk that there could be recession. And in a way, it goes back to our discussion of, as we get the inflation rate back to target, we got to also be mindful that it's a dual mandate. It's not just an inflation mandate. The reason why we're obsessive about inflation in this period is because that's the part of the mandate that's been going badly wrong. But if we start getting into an environment where recession is a possibility and we still think that we're on target, then that's when I'm going to be looking and saying, hey, let's examine what our posture is on restrictiveness. I think that's fair, but I think it's certainly also fair to say that you all did influence inequality on the way up, right? The actions of March 2020 really did spike and significantly increase the inequality because of the actions that you all took in terms of funneling a lot of money and wealth to the very, very rich and the very, very wealthy. We're now going to get into a what before I ever was at the Fed. I was part you of weren't these there at the time, discussions. So I, I, yeah, fair. I wasn't there. But but the the thing always to ask, in a way, is the counterfactual. But it is, is letting the economy collapse and having a giant recession, would that not make inequality worse? I think it would. So the the question of if the Fed or the federal government took some substantial action that you feel like helped people that have assets, that is a type of inequality. But avoiding a Great Depression is a reduction of inequality compared with what it would have been if the economy fell apart. And so that's always the twin horns of the dilemma that that you're trying to figure out. The Fed, like I say, the the good part is, yeah. But I I will say it's not that I feel, it's that that's what the data show. That that's what the data show. There's, There's controversy on that point because the question is, 
Is it caused by Fed action or are the Fed and the markets simply reacting to some underlying thing in the data? That, that's, the, that's the argument and the, and the controversy. You, you know, like I said, you study the data. You are, are looking at things from all different perspectives. What are the things that are keeping you up at night in a good way? And maybe in a bad way, are there data points that are giving you a lot of hope and a lot of excitement about the economy? And are there is there a data point that's on the other side making you worried? I, I love the thought. What keeps you up at night in a good way? You know, yeah, like yeah. what do you like? Oh, man, I'm so excited worth, to read this data report. partying over? The specific thing worth partying over, if it continued, would be the productivity growth rate. No question about it. That would be the that would be one of the greatest developments ever. I don't think we should count on that. Most likely, things will go back to trend. But even if we could go back to the productivity trend before COVID, that'd be a lot better than what a bunch of folks, including myself, feared as this thing was going along. So that would keep you up. That would allow you to stay up late rather than keep you up. The things to be worried about, and as I say, the job of central banker is to be worried about everything. Volker used to say that, there was no silver lining bright enough that he could not find a dark cloud to block it out. You know, and th- that's that's part of the job. It's clear that all sorts of bad things could happen that would have a major spiraling negative effect on the U.S. economy, from oil prices to developments in China and financial markets. And we also still need to work through our thinking about not just commercial real estate specifically, but the what's the state of credit in the country and is there frothiness? Are there bubbles? There have been multiple recessions in U.S. history. I remind everybody that were caused by popping bubbles. So if you think that there's a bubble in equities, in housing, in commercial real estate, that is where the, we're going to have substantial asset price drops in a short period of time, that will likely have negative impacts on the economy in a, in a pretty big way. So we got we to gotta think about those ones too. That was our one-on-one interview with Austin Goolsby, the president of the Chicago Fed. Be sure to check out our end-of-the-year episode on December 31st for more on the economy, markets, and everything else that matters. Thanks for listening to this special episode of WSJ's Take on the Week. The show is produced by Jess Jupiter. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. We got help this week from Charlotte Gartenberg and Melanie Roy. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers. Michael also wrote our theme music. Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer. Scott Salloway and Chris Zinsley are the deputy editors. And Falana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. For even more, head to WSJ.com. I'm Dion Rabone. Stay smart.